Good morning. Today's Bible reading is taken from John chapter 2, verses 23, into John chapter 3, all the way to verse 21. And it's in the white booklet, pages 11, 12, and 13. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to listen to me. But um, the song, um, probably very well known to many of us, would you believe it's nearly 20 years old? Uh, But the question that runs through it is, where is the love? And it's a question I'm sure that we all ask ourselves. 
Uh, as we see pictures of bombed-out Mariupol, people fleeing for their lives, we ask ourselves, where's the love? Where's the humanity here? As we watch people take verbal chunks out of one another on Twitter, we think to ourselves, where's the love? Where's the mercy? As we experience the cold shoulder at work or the tragedy of a broken friend or a betrayal um, of someone, we think, where's the compassion? Where is the love? And the question in the song, where is the love, it, it captures that feeling that this world is not as it should be. It captures that anger, doesn't it? That the world should be better than this. But for all the song's qualities and the very catchy tune, admittedly, it hasn't really changed things, has it? We're still asking that same question today as we were 20 years ago. Where is the love? And just when it feels like our world might improve, we're hit left field with a global crisis or an invasion, and as we do, our hopes get evaporated once again. And we think to ourselves, is there any hope? Where is the love? But what if there was an answer to that question, where is the love? And what if there's an answer as to why our world just repeatedly struggles to love? And what if there was an answer that could genuinely fix things? Well, that's what this passage claims this morning. Uh, We're going to have a look at it. It it describes Jesus' conversation with a man, and it shows in this conversation what our greatest problem is as human beings. But then it talks about an incredible solution before showing us where, indeed, is the love. So we're going to look at the problem the solution, and then the reason. See, what's the problem with our world? Why don't we love one another as we might expect? Well, people have lots of answers to that question, don't they? Depending on where you are on the political spectrum, you might point the finger at social inequality or a lack of morals or not much education or we've forgotten the values of the past or social media. There's all sorts of answers to that question. But Jesus' answer gets a lot closer to home. See, in this passage, we're eavesdropping in on a conversation between Jesus and a man called Nicodemus. And um, Nicodemus is as close as you get to a kind of first-century superhero. He's the Iron Man or um, whatever it would be of the day. Because Nicodemus is a religious teacher. We're told he's a Pharisee in verse 1. Now, Pharisees were like the kind of monks of the day. They were the strictest religious order. And we're also told that he's a leader of the Jews. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. And so just picture in your head here, a kind of Archbishop of Canterbury religious person combined with a cabinet minister, that's the sort of guy we've got here. It's the sort of person that people would stop for in the street, thinking, here's a holy man coming. It was the sort of guy that people would be in absolutely no doubt deserved to be in God's kingdom. Yet look at what Jesus says to him in verse 3, sentence 3 there. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, it might not be obvious on first reading, but what Jesus has said to him 
could be taken as incredibly offensive. Because here we have an A-star religious candidate, someone who has devoted his life to God and serving his people, and yet, listen to what Jesus is saying to him. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, the kingdom of God is another phrase for heaven or eternal life or the life to come. And Jesus is basically saying, look, Nicodemus, don't expect to be automatically in it. Your religious credentials, your leadership doesn't get you an entry pass into the gates of heaven. Rather, you need to be born again. Now, it's worth saying that born again here isn't a kind of special category of Christian. Some people talk about born again Christians uh, as kind of extra enthusiastic Christians. It doesn't mean that kind of idea. We get a clue to what it means in that little sentence five on page 12. Because Jesus repeats the same thing, but he puts it slightly differently. Uh, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Now, what's Jesus mean there when he says born of water and the Spirit? Well, that's acting like a hyperlink to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written before Jesus, and uh, in the Old Testament, in one of the prophets called Ezekiel, he writes about water and the Spirit. Now, he does so when God's people really are at rock bottom. They are they're invaded, they're defeated, they're marched out of their land, and they live in a foreign nation. And people at that time are asking themselves, what's gone wrong? Why has this happened to us? Where's the love, you might say? And God gives them a very difficult answer. Uh, here's what he says in Ezekiel. When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it, by their conduct and their actions. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they defiled it with their idols. See, the the question they're asking is, why is our world like this? Where's the love, God? And you see God's answer? I'm afraid it's you. See, the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't military spending. The problem isn't their defense strategy. Uh, The problem isn't a lack of preparation. The problem is their hearts. But in a wonderful, incredible passage, God completely transforms their outcome. He promises to change them. Here's what he says. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And now here's the time for the hyperlink. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Despite all the mess, despite all the rejection, despite all they've done, God promises to wash them with water and to give them a new spirit. And what's remarkable about this promise, just look at it for for a second, is that repeated phrase, I will. I will wash you. I will put a new spirit in you. See, in other words, the problem, guys, is so big that I'm going to step in, roll up my sleeves, and solve it myself. And coming back to Nicodemus, he he should have got that. 
I mean, this is someone who taught the Old Testament for a living. He should have got this first lesson, 101, that actually we can do nothing ourselves to enter the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus' problem is not that he's almost perfect, but he doesn't get everything right. His problem isn't that actually he forgets to do the right thing now and again. No, he's got a far more fundamental problem than that. His heart is completely turned away from God and broken. See, so often, I think this as well, we, we think of the problems in our world, and there are very desperate problems in our world. But it's very easy, isn't it, to just keep on the horizontal and think the problem is with other people. But actually, the Bible comes back and says, actually, the problem's not just vert- uh, horizontal, it is vertical. Because there's a problem with us and our Creator. In that song, we sing, where's the love? And it's like God says back to us, well, where's your love? Where's your love for me? Now, when I first looked at this as an adult, as a, when I was looking into Christianity, I mentioned last week that I haven't been a Christian my whole life and um, became a Christian at university. And when I looked at this, of course, it was deeply uncomfortable. And I'm sure some of us will be here this morning feeling that kind of sense of, this is quite difficult to hear. And quite often at university, I had no shortage of opinions about what the problems in the world were. I was very political, very active, and I, I would say that actually people have got it wrong over here and talk about it with my friends, and we were just in a kind of echo chamber where we were blaming everyone else outside. But actually, as I opened up the Bible, do you know it was the first place I found that actually was honest, that the problem wasn't just other people, wasn't just political systems, but the problem was me. And actually, to be honest, as hard as that was, it was refreshingly honest because it made sense of how I instinctively felt. See, as I began to hear that there might be a God, I didn't think to myself, oh, great, here's the one I've been looking for. I'm going to bow down and worship. I thought, to be honest, here's someone who's going to rival my ambition, someone who's going to be a potential threat to my freedom. See, where's the love? Well, it's not in our hearts. So that's the problem, but what is the solution? Because if we stop there, it'd be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Uh, I mean, it's nice to come together, but, but there is more that Jesus goes on to talk about. Uh, we see, secondly, therefore, that we've seen the problem. We see also a solution. And I guess looking at Nicodemus, we might feel a little bit sorry for him. He's come to Jesus, he's asked these questions, and Jesus has been pretty straight with him. And it is a bit confusing, isn't it, to be born again? What does that mean? We can understand why he asked that question in verse 4. Does that mean to enter into a mother's womb? But Jesus answers him with another hyperlink. And, and this hyperlink takes us not to Ezekiel, but to another time in Israel's history. A quite peculiar time. Now, they're back, uh, they're in the kind of desert, they're walking through as a kind of refugee people, and uh, as they do, their supplies run out. The picnic is exhausted, the water bottles uh, run dry, and they cry out against God. And just look at what they say. Uh, Here's um, a verse uh, from there. That is not, I'll read it to us. 
They spoke out against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And then we read, the Lord then sent venomous snakes against them. They bit people and many Israelites died. Now, I'm sure we've all seen David Attenborough's Planet Earth 2. You remember that incredible scene with the iguana kind of leaping up the rocks and the snakes? If you don't like snakes, do not watch it uh, because uh, it will give you a phobia. Even if you do like snakes, you won't after that. They're leaping at this iguana trying to take it on. And that's the kind of picture here that these people, they cry out, they rebel against God and God sends these snakes so that they're bitten and they die. Now, it sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But then God has mercy on them. Oh, there's the iguana, by the way. You can look it up later. Because he says this, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, a look to the bronze snake, they lived It's an incredible kind of anti-venom, isn't it? It's not in a syringe. It is in this snake on a pole. Now, maybe scratch our heads and think to ourselves, that sounds a bit bizarre. But the point was not that there was some sort of magic in this snake. The point was that the people were trusting God for his solution to their predicament. And Jesus says that's like his work that he's come to do. Have a look at what he says in sentence 14. He says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, what's this got to do with the question of Nicodemus? How do I get into the kingdom of God? Well, it shows us where the answer isn't found, And it shows us where the answer is found. See, the the question, how can I be born again, is the answer is you can't. There's nothing you can do. The the problem with the snakes was so big that the people could do nothing but cry out to God for mercy. And it's similar here. You face a problem, Jesus says, that actually you cannot do anything about. In fact, being born again, it captures that idea, doesn't it? I mean, think back to when you were born. Do you remember it well? Yeah? I mean, were you consulted? I'm guessing not. Uh, Did you have much choice? No. Uh, Do you remember it? Of course not. Unless, yeah, there was a weird kid at school who claimed that he did. But apart from that, you you don't, do you? And yet, it is the most life-changing, quite literally, event you've ever been through. And yet, it had absolutely zero to do with you. And the same idea is here, we face a predicament as big as that, that no amount of religious devotion, no amount of trying harder can fix it. So that's how we cannot be born again. But if that's the case, what is the solution? Well, the solution doesn't come from us, but it does come from God. See, Jesus says, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him 
and may have eternal life in him. See, God gives us his son that we may be forgiven and given life. It's not about us. It's not our solution. It's like the snakes in the desert. It is crying out for God's mercy. And God gives us his son to show his mercy. Now, it took a long time for me to get this when I was thinking about what a Christian meant. I mean, I assumed that it was about trying to be a bit better, trying to keep the rules, trying to go to church, and being basically a bit religious. But as I looked at the Bible, I realized that that really was not what it was about. Because as I looked at the Bible, I saw, actually, I was religious, uh, spiritually bankrupt. I was out of sync with my creator. The problem was so deep that no amount of religion could solve it. But then here's the thing. I saw that God had done it already. That he had given his son. That he had shown mercy. And my job was not to go around trying to achieve. My job was just to believe. Now we might ask ourselves, why should I even care? I mean, okay, that sounds very nice, sounds very good of God. But why should that move me? And maybe you're someone who's pretty happy with life as it is. You think to yourself, why would I change the status quo? Well, thirdly, and a bit shorter, we see, actually, the big reason why this matters. We see the reason is love. See, the passage finishes um, by showing us, um, in a kind of, of, um, in slow motion, what Jesus has just said. So, Um, From verse 16, John gives a commentary, the the author, on what Jesus has just said. This is John's words. And it is like the slow slow motion action replay on the telly when you see the goal go in and you see it from all angles. This is designed to get us to really see how significant this is. And 3.16, I mean, it's got to be the candidate for the most famous verse in the Bible, hasn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, it's a wonderful verse, and there's a good reason why it's the most famous verse in the Bible. But if you notice, it's got a sting in the tail, hasn't it? Because it implies that without this, we are perishing. See, today, many mothers will receive flowers, And I'm sure they look very beautiful. But we know that they will begin to fade. They will begin to wilt. And within a week or so, they'll end up in the green waste, smelling rather interesting. And so it is with us all. We all look wonderful. We all achieve great things. We create magical moments. There's much to celebrate about life. But life, sadly has an expiry date. All of us perish. But perish here has an even deeper meaning. See, um, in verse 18, uh, that little sentence 18 there, it, it speaks about this word condemn. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, to be condemned means to be cut off from our creator. 
It means to be cut off from all that is good in our world and all that is life-giving. Jesus says that that isolation we experience now, that perishing, actually runs through beyond this life. See, we're all like the flowers in the vase. We look alive and we look wonderful today, but actually we're really on borrowed time. We're cut off from our life source. But here's the wonderful thing. God doesn't leave us facing this condemnation. He acts to save us. Because verse 16 tells us that he loved the world, a world that didn't love him, he shows compassion towards. A world that didn't recognize his son, he sends his son to See, because of his love, he doesn't leave you as you are. He doesn't chuck the rule book at you. He doesn't throw his arms up in despair. He doesn't uh, bring his fists down in condemnation and judgment. Rather, he opens up his arms of love, those arms on a wooden cross. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because the black-eyed peas, the, the chorus goes, Father, Father, help us. Send some guidance from above. Where's the love? Well, the answer is that there has been some guidance from above. In fact, there's been more than guidance. There's been a person from above. And we ask the question, where is the love? And God's answer to us is, you've seen him. Look at my son. As you look at the cross, as you see Jesus dying, you see God's rescue plan to take us from our predicament, to mean to, to, so that we do not perish, but have life with our Creator. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the question for us is pretty simple, isn't it? How do we respond? to this wonderful, gracious gift of God. It's wonderful, later in John's Gospel, Nicodemus, he gets a bit of a telling off here, but actually he's one of the people that um, looks after Jesus after he dies, and it's a wonderful little detail, because it shows that Nicodemus saw his problem, saw the provision of God's solution in his son, and saw the love God poured out towards him, and responded by looking on his son on the pole. Okay, so um, it, was a, it was a slow start, but we've had loads of questions <laughs> coming in, so um, it will forgive us while we just collect our thoughts. So we had a couple of questions, Rob, on uh, Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. So you described him as a cabinet minister slash archbishop type um, who came to Jesus at night. Uh, so the question is, why would he come to Jesus at night? Um, and also then, winding the clock forward, uh, when Jesus had died, uh, Nicodemus helped. Um, presumably that was much more public uh, to his encounter at night. So what's the significance around, around that? Yeah, I mean, um, John has an incredible way of writing. So sometimes you think, is that just a coincidence or is there something else going on? Um, I think there's a case to be made that the darkness is key Um, because if you look at sentence 19, John says this, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, 
but the people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Um, and so there's a little hint here that Nicodemus is sort of not prepared to step out, uh, not to identify with Jesus at this point, uh, but to come under the guise of night. Um, and a kind of, there's a little kind of um, reminder here why that might be. And wonderfully, in chapter 4, Jesus meets a, a kind of um, outcast woman, and he meets her right in the middle of the day, and she's like a model uh, in her response to Jesus. So um, I think there's probably something of that going on. And what was the second bit? Just So after Jesus died, Nicodemus uh, helped. Um, what did it mean uh, had happened to Nicodemus in the meantime? Yeah, so you get this wonderful thing that here in, at the beginning, he's not in a great place. Then there's a little bit in chapter 10, I believe, where um, Nicodemus sort of says to the council, come on, give, give Jesus a chance. So he's kind of you know, he's moving a little bit. And then right at the end, um, you see Nicodemus identify with Jesus. And so it's this wonderful progression that goes through John's gospel of this guy who's on the edge and then uh, nails his colors to the mast uh, at the end. And I, I find that so helpful because Nicodemus is like most of us. We're not sort of anti-Jesus, most of us. We're not kind of, um, you know, there's lots of things most people in our culture today like about Jesus. But like Nicodemus, we, we don't always get that actually the problem runs far deeper. And because of that, we, have, we find it difficult to nail our colors to the mouth. So Nicodemus is a great example mm. of that. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so um, you painted the picture that um, John 3.16 kind of gives us a quite a high-stakes um, response, so the perish um, or life. Um, so somebody's asked the question, what evidence is there that the Bible is true and accurate and that we should trust what it says? Yeah, really good question. Um, it's exactly the question I had um, when I was 21, looking at this. I thought, this can't be true. This doesn't weigh up. I've got science by, you know, I love science. You know, how does it fit? Um, but then, actually, I changed my mind on that, obviously, hopefully, <laughs> uh, by standing here. But um, I think there's many ways to answer that. I think, first of all, to say that it's historical, that actually this is not just someone's take on things. It's not one prophet sort of sitting on their own in the desert um, writing down what they think about God. Um, it's a collection of books over thousands of years that speaks of actual historical events. And so um, the question is, obviously, are they a fair representation of those historical events? But we are dealing with something that has happened in history. I mean, whatever you say... Um, there's something that happened 2,000 years ago in that part of the world that gave birth to a global movement uh, that is still uh, dominating the world today in terms of... Um, and the question is, what caused that? Um, was it a big hoax, or was it actually true? And I guess that's the question for all of us. Um, you know, it's in undeniable that it had such an impact. Um, the second thing to say, so that's historical, the second thing to say is internal... Um, the Bible, I mentioned a bit about those hyperlinks. The Bible's full of hyperlinks. And actually, even though it's separate books, it's one story from beginning to end. And actually, the way Jesus fulfills things, like his birthplace, which was promised in the Old Testament, which is very difficult to, to bring about, as I hinted at, um, for me, just shows actually the internal weight of it adds up as well. And then I think thirdly, and I hinted at this again, there's a personal thing here that actually does this kind of resonate with my personal experience. And I think, you know, for example, with that question of sin, I think there were actually were things so deep within me 
that I didn't feel any of the world's explanations at that point really got to, got to um, held water. And I guess looking at the Bible, I think actually this is something that resonates with my experience. That's not just what makes it true, uh, but it is helpful to see that actually explains the human experience so well. Thank you. Um, our most popular question kind of links into that a little bit in terms of our personal experience. So somebody asked, why don't I have the love for God naturally? Why do I need his help? Um, wow. <laughs> there is so much we could say. Um, I think there is so much we could say. So I think that's almost the question the Bible answers. So, you know, without being too rude, I think you've got to read the Bible to see that. But I guess there's a little hint, isn't there, um, of that in, um, in this passage in uh, sentence 20. Um, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. And there is that sense of um, God, I need God, and God's good, but as I come to him, there's that sense of which he shows up what I'm not like, uh, the fact that I'm not holy, I'm not like God. And so, you know, just like, you know, you turn on a light and, um, you know, insects flee, there's that sense of, actually, I'm terrified to come to God. And um, as, as crazy as that is, um, I, it's understandable, isn't it? But I guess here's the wonderful thing, that God does come to us, and he doesn't, um, despite us not loving him, he pushes through that and actually changes our hearts by dying for us um, so that we can love him. Mm. Yeah, so that's probably where I'd start. Thank but there's you. plenty more to say. Can we do one more? You can. You're in charge. Okay, so <laughs> this, uh, this one is, um, how do you approach the question, my deceased relative was a good person, surely they must now be in heaven? Um, Thank you for sharing that. What a difficult question. Um, mm. uh, I think the first thing to say is I'm, I'm not the judge and um, there is one who judges and it's not my place, nor is it any of our places um, to sort of work out where someone's heart is uh, in terms of where they were when they died. Um, we don't know uh, 100%. Um, and I think we just need to hold on to that, that God's good and he's just and he does everything right. Um, but I guess, you know, taking aside the very real emotional pain that would be felt with that question, if I was to just take it out and make it a bit more sort of less loaded in that sense, I guess the question is, what is good? Um, because, uh, yes, we can define good as, you know, the things like being a good citizen or paying your taxes or, you know, taking in a refugee or something like that. But actually God's definition of good includes those things, but actually is far deeper. Um, if we've done all those things and not recognized God himself in his son, actually the Bible would say that's not good. Um, so yes, those things are good, but actually the ultimate good, as it says here, um, is, uh, is to recognize God himself in his son.